My guest today is a theoretical physicist making incredible discoveries on black holes and gravitational wave detections. And she's a professor at the University of Texas at Austin. Please welcome Dr. Deirdre Shoemaker. Deirdre, how are you doing? Good, how are you? I'm doing fine, doing fine. Hey, thank you for coming on to the podcast, Deirdre. I really appreciate it. Thank you for the invitation. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so, hey, let's jump right into this. What do you do? <laughs> it's a good question. What do we do? So I am a professor at the University of Texas at Austin, although I just arrived here this semester, this September, and I study black holes and gravitational waves. So I'm a theoretical physicist. Okay. Now, one reason your name popped up is because you're part of a international scientific team that released this updated catalog of gravitational wave detections. And the detections that you released, it's more than triple the number that were confirmed. Is that correct? It was like around 11 confirmed, 39 or so that you have Yeah, you're good. We're up to 50. That's right. Wow. So, yeah, it's... So can, uh, Crazy. Yeah, that is crazy. So can you, one, can you talk about what this actually is and the significance of it? So back in 2015, mm -hmm. well, first I should back up. So LIGO is an American, the United States Gravitational Wave Observatory. There's mm -hmm. two sites, all funded by the National Science Foundation. One is in Louisiana and one's in Washington State. And then there's our European partner, Virgo. And there's a Japanese partner coming online called Kagra. So this mm. is big science, thousands of people, you know, <laughs> multinational, not quite the lone wolf in a lab working away. <laughs> and in 2015, we saw our very first detection of the gravitational wave. And what that means is two very dense compact objects, stars, basically collided, stuck together. <laughs> and it actually changed the space and time itself. Mm. And we could pick up the vibration of that collision all the way at earth. And you know, the collision happened like 1.5 billion light years away. I mean, so this is really far away. This is incredible distance. We couldn't see it with our naked eye. And so the very first time we picked up that was in 2015, it was two black holes that collided. And so we were very excited. Very first event of gravitational waves, very first event of black holes. We didn't even know that for sure, no one had ever seen or measured two black holes orbiting each other and colliding before. So it was a first for a lot of reasons. And now it's 2020 and we went from one to 50. And the reasons for that is the detector has gotten better. Okay. So both the United States and in Europe and the new one coming along, keep increasing that. So the more sensitive the detector becomes, the further away you can detect events, the further away you can see them. And so you get more because they're rare. So you need a huge volume of space in order to add up some events. So that's how we went from actually decades working to get one <laughs> to five years later having 50. So on a high level, can you talk about how these detectors work? Because they're able to feel these vibrations for more than a billion years later. Is that correct? Yeah. It's key thing is, is that first off the caveat is, is I'm a theorist. So they, you know, they would never even let me play with the detectors, <laughs> but they are really impressive. They are pretty much just a pendulum with a mirror hanging from it, but you need at least two. Because what you're doing is if there were only one and this vibration came through, which we call gravitational waves, 
you wouldn't know anything happened. So you need two because you're going to measure the distance between them, how that changes in time. Mm. But it changes at 10 to the minus 21. So that's that's um, as if you were trying to measure the width of a hair distance between a very distance between the Earth and the closest star. And these are like itty bitty. Wow. So LIGO is built and Virgo and all of them. They're interferometers. So that just means that there's an L shape and there's a mirror hanging at each end of the L. It's a four kilometer long vacuum chamber. Um, it's surrounded in concrete. So if you see it, it just looks like two tubes of an L. And lasers are sent down. A laser is split in half, sent down each beam, each, tu each tunnel, bounces off the mirror and comes back and gets recombined. And so if a gravitational wave hasn't hit, the length of the arms doesn't change, you don't see anything. And the idea is that the length of the arms change, you start to see a light pattern. And um, of course, anything can make the lengths of the arms change, you know, a nice earthquake, a tumbleweed. <laughs> it's a very sensitive detector. And so you need sophisticated, not only the equipment is sophisticated, but you need sophisticated data analysis to isolate a source event from noise. And then you need theorists like me to predict what we think physics is telling us the event should look like. So that's why it's such a large team, because you need a lot of different expertise. Wow. And over the last five years, there's just been all kinds of advancements in the technology yeah. and the, the things that you're seeing. So that's going to be quite exciting then, these last few it years. Is. Yeah. It is. So every time, it's an interesting sociological thing in the sense that, you know, the experimentalists have plotted this out for years. This isn't mm -hmm. something that you improve overnight. So there's a plan. But the thing is, you have to stop doing science to put in new improvements in the system mm. and then start again. So that's why these catalogs come out in chunks over the years, because in between, we actually shut the, the detectors down, people put in the improvements, and then they bring it back up again. So it's always a little scary because I don't know if you've ever tried to repair anything, but often things don't come back perfectly. <laughs> so <Right. laughs> it's a fascinating, even being part of it, it still fascinates me that what the work that people can do and the imagination and creativity on this stuff. And you've also detected, the team that you were on detected the heaviest black hole binary yeah. system, is that correct? Yes, yeah, can you talk that about was that? fun too. <laughs> so I love black holes. <laughs> um, I, everyone kind of does, right? They're like yeah. one of these things that even movies get made about. <laughs> yep. And back in 2015, we were surprised by the mass of the black hole we saw then. So black holes can kind of come in any mass, theoretically. But to form them, the ones that these ground-based detectors are sensitive to, they are heavier than our sun, but in that order of magnitude. So like maybe five times the mass of the sun to whatever. At some point, LIGO is no longer sensitive if they get too big. So like a black hole in the center of a galaxy might be a billion times the mass of our sun, where the ones LIGO is sensitive to probably came from a really big star, bigger than our sun, that ends its life cycle by collapsing into a black hole. But we didn't know if we could make really big ones of those. Because if a star gets too big, it blows up and might not leave any remnant behind. So there wasn't really a good understanding of how you would form black holes like the one we just detected. So the way these detections happen is you detect first the mass of the two black holes because they're orbiting each other. And as they orbit each other, they're losing energy from gravitational waves. So they're getting closer together as they orbit because they're losing that energy. And so we, we measure the masses of the two individual black holes and then we measure the mass of the final black hole. So the mass of that final black hole was bigger than anything we had seen before. So that's, the mass ends up being the sum of the two black holes minus a little bit because we lost energy to radiation. And um, so now that we're seeing black holes that are over 100 solar masses, it's really challenging how we think 
the black holes form from a star. Mm. And that's why it generates a lot of interest, not just for people like me who study black holes for the sake of understanding black holes or gravitational waves, but for the astronomy community who studies the life cycle of a star. Right. And how it could actually form things that end up in a binary that gives us the situation we just saw. So the black holes of the individual were big enough that it challenges our understanding of how they form. Mm. Now, now, I don't uh, do that part, but oh, it's right. really cool stuff. Yes, <laughs> it is. <laughs> so now talking about the gravitational waves, though, you're looking at black holes, but you're also looking at, I guess, neutron stars and white dwarfs as well. Mm-hmm. Can you explain? Can you explain these and the differences between them? Yeah, so the black holes are kind of like the baddest ones. So this won't happen to our sun. It's not quite big enough. But if I took something a little bigger than our sun, and stars are shining because they're having this competition happening. There's a competition between gravity pulling it in and pressure coming from whatever the fuel is burning, pushing it out. Mm. So a star is in equilibrium because those two things are equal, and you know we see the sunlight and everything's good. But if it's too big... And it runs out of fuel, which always happens, right? They're not going to last forever. Then it starts to contract. So gravity starts winning. And depending on the mass of the star, different types of things will stop it. So if you have a a star that's not that much bigger than our sun, and it starts to collapse because it's run out of fuel, a white dwarf will form if the pressure provided by the fact that the electrons don't want to hang out together is enough to balance the gravitational attraction. Mm. So that's a white dwarf. If it's bigger than that, then you get a neutron star, which means it collapses. It's not enough that electron degeneracy pressure. It collapses back down to basically the nucleus. Mm. The electrons are outside the nucleus. And that's what we call a neutron star. And then that pressure, the fact that that thing doesn't want to collapse, it keeps you as a star. But if it's too big, even that isn't enough. And then you form a black hole. So here is where we run out of science. Because when a star collapses all the way down, not even a neutron star can withstand it then we just think it goes into a singularity. So then we say that whole mass of that star just became a singular point, and we only describe it as curvature anymore. And that obviously happens. We've detected black holes, but we don't really understand what's happening as it collapses down to a single point. That's where the theory fails. If you ask me what motivates me to do this science, is that we're looking for a new theory to explain what really happens as you as you collapse into a black hole. Right. Right. And, and can you talk a little bit about those theories? on a high level just well yeah that's harder right a high level i love that so your mom would understand sure (laughs) yeah um (laughs) my mom never understood (laughs) yeah so most people have heard of general relativity because einstein's cool we all love einstein so that's what i study right i'm up i that's what i do i teach and i study einstein's general theory of relativity and that's 1915 he okay he like announced his his discovery, his theory. And it predicts gravitational waves and it predicts black holes, that theory. But when you form a singularity, it means everything went to infinity. It's usually a sign that something's not quite well described. Mm. You know, like if you have to invoke infinity everywhere, it's not a good thing. And so so that was the first pressure. You know, at the time that general relativity was coming on board, you also had quantum mechanics. And so quantum mechanics is the study of the very, very small, right? And other theories, like our understanding of electromagnetism and other forces, get along well with quantum mechanics. So I can think of electromagnetic radiation like light as either an electromagnetic wave, sort of classical thing, or as a photon, sort of quantum thing. 
But we don't have that ability with general relativity. So I can think of gravitational waves. In fact, someone won the Nobel Prize for that classically, but there is no quantum description. And so we could call the counterpart of the gravitational waves as a particle, a graviton, and study it. But not only have we haven't detected it, but we don't really have the proper theory that would predict it and it's all of its properties the way we know about photons. So this is the sort of glaring thing wrong in physics right now, is that we don't have a theory of gravity that also goes from quantum mechanics out to a, a more classical theory. And you never know where the evidence for the new idea is going to come from when we don't know when. So since this is the very first detections of gravitational waves, of course, we're all hoping that there might be somewhere in that data, the first signpost that says, this is the way to understand what's really happening. And so first we have to do the general relativity really well, because we have to be able to know when, if it's going to go be inconsistent with the data. And then we have to look for signs of another theory. I do general relativity, so I am not the person who comes up with the new theories. I don't quantize gravity. That'd be like string theorists or people who do quantum gravity. There's sort of two camps. But I'm looking for the data to show us where we might learn something new. And so that's what we hope. Like there's going to be some smoking gun. Because right now what's really interesting is all the data we've collected is still consistent with Einstein's theory. Oh. So the black holes look like Einstein's black holes, you know, just the way we would have predicted them. But that's okay. It's early days, right? It's been, it's been five years. <laughs> so be patient. Isn't that so amazing though? Just 100 years ago and with all the technology and everything that we have now, our theories are still in line with what Einstein came up with. Yeah. It's, and you know, I think even, well, we love our myths that Einstein, don't we? Um, he didn't even really like the the black holes and gravitational waves that much. You know, they were, people struggled with the, the predictions in the very beginning because the theory is hard and there's a lot of flexibility because of things you can do with the theory. So it made it hard to really understand some of these things. Right. I mean, that's why you see the Nobel Prize for gravitational waves and now another one on black holes because they were just so challenging. For None of us see them in our yeah. everyday life. So, but they've been confirmed. So whatever is going to teach us is going to be more subtle yeah. um, than this, but it'll be fun when it happens. Yeah. <laughs> so let's back up. How'd you get into this? Learning about gravitational wave detections and black holes. <laughs> I'm always embarrassed by this question because I was that kid. You always hear the myth <laughs> of the kid who wanted to do this their whole life. God, I was that kid. 12 years old. I'm going to study black holes. That's not uh, embarrassing God. at all. I think that's, that's so great. <laughs> My husband makes so much fun of me. He's also a physicist who does this, but, um, but still he was makes fun of you. Normal. Oh, yeah, because he didn't do this at 12. He was, like, playing soccer. Yeah, I was super, super dorky. And I got really fascinated by black holes, and I just didn't stop. So, still do it. <laughs> uh, and then I was really lucky, because I was an undergraduate in the 90s, and that's when I started building LIGO, the first incarnation of it. And so there was a lot of talk about it. And my field is numerical relativity, which is the computational solving Einstein's equations using computers, because they're too hard to solve paper and pencil. Mm -hmm. And so I started doing that in the 90s as an undergrad. Kip Thorne was talking about how important it was going to be that we solve these equations. And it took us till 2005, wow. 2006 to do it. So you have to be real stubborn to make it that long. But the promise was there. And I found it very exciting that there was going to be this beautiful theory that was finally going to have data to confront it. So I was very fascinated by the fact that there would be real data. It wouldn't just be, I think, theories right. telling us. And then from undergrad, did you go into your PhD? Yeah, yeah, that's what we do. 
So, so we don't even usually stop for a master's. I actually don't have a master's degree. I forgot to like fill out the paperwork. I don't know. <laughs> but um, yeah, I didn't do it. I went straight from undergrad, straight to grad school, straight to postdoc. I never, I had zero deviations. Mm. Yeah. And very, not a very interesting story. Just pure doop, doop, doop. So. <laughs> and then what was your thesis on? Black holes colliding. <laughs> I mean, when I say <laughs> that I have been singular focused, I am not joking. That so is my great. undergraduate thesis was on black holes. Okay. Yeah, I know. It's embarrassing. I should know more about them. I don't remember things very well, so I always drop numbers and stuff. But yes, yeah, so I've studied black holes in undergrad, a graduate student, and um, haven't stopped. So. But what specifically was it on your thesis? <laughs> so back then, early, late 90s, <laughs> we were, it was actually at UT Austin, which is kind of funny. I would okay. come back. My advisor, Richard Matzner, was part of a thing called a grand challenge. And a grand challenge meant that we couldn't, we couldn't solve it. <laughs> we couldn't be deadly. And we were using the best computer time, which is funny now. And we were trying to get to, we were trying to solve the two-body problem of general relativity. So two-body problem in Newtonian mechanics, is we can do easily. You mm -hmm. solve it. On a piece of paper but in gr it's hard because it's not linear and we just you needed computers and we just couldn't do it and so i just solved two black holes moving a little bit until they formed a single black hole and i did that but it was a very small piece of the puzzle and but it's so sad because that was my uh thesis so i got but the fact that i got to be on the team that saw that first black hole event actually merge and see it in the data oh. was unreal you know and then i thought oh now what Mm. There it is. <laughs> Waiting for this for a long time. What's next? So right. it was very surreal. <laughs> Fun, well, surreal. So can you talk about what a typical day of yours looks like? Sure. I mean, now it's the new typical. Yeah. As I'm talking to you while my great Dane, my two-year-old great Dane puppy sleeps next to me. Mm. She likes this new world where mom and dad are home all the time. Mm. Our days... So it changes a lot, I think, as you move up in your career. So when I was a younger professor, <laughs> I spent more of my time actually doing everything as a computer code. It's all computational, and I was more in the code. Now I pretty much don't do any coding, and I have a team of people. So what I like most is having graduate students and postdocs that you work with, and obviously my colleagues all over the world. That part's really fun. Yeah. makes telecons challenging because they're <laughs> all over the world, but it's not. So now my daily life is a bit more proposal, writing, writing papers with my students, meeting with people, talking a lot, brainstorming about new ideas, paying attention to what NASA's new mission is going to look like. How is LIGO changing? What is the country doing for funding? Are we pushing our agenda to make sure that we get funding so we keep doing our science over the next 20 years? So it goes from being, I think, very internal to being a little more global as you age. <laughs> so it changed its style a lot over the last few years, but I enjoy it. I enjoy the interaction with people, but also the thinking long, how is this going to look over the next decade or so? Right. Right. Okay. So I do a lot of email, right? We're on a computer. So that's why I tell you it's not that glamorous. Oh, uh, no, no. We're all in front of the computer. Cool. You know, <laughs> I mean, sad. But you're in front of the computer, but you're studying disturbances and the curvature of space-time, <laughs> so, uh, black holes and so doing all this and, and, and <laughs> teaching and working with your grad students and your postdoctoral students, what skill sets and characteristics would you say are most important to be successful in what you do? Um, that's a good question. That's a good question. I think that you don't have to be the weird kid that decided to do it at 12. I think sometimes we say follow your passion to the detriment of our, of our young people because it's an awful 
high order to give someone. I think I prize stubbornness because most days are not black holes being detected for the first time <laughs> or in most 20 years times are not that exciting. Mm-hmm. So day has got to be a battle with just getting through and making good choices as you code and, and do science. So I look for stubbornness. I look for creativity and I look for someone who isn't afraid of a computer <laughs> and who just can sort of balance the long view with the nitty gritty details that you have to do to make any progress. And the the progress can be slow. It can be really beautiful sometimes, but it also can be slow. So you have to have that patience and balance. All right, great. So just stubbornness, creativity, coding (laughs) and computer skills, and then patience. Yeah, Yeah, they don't know GR usually when I get them. When I... (laughs) And they don't know general relativity, right? So they, they need the computer skills. And then we can teach them the general relativity. Okay. Now, what do you love about what you do? Oh, that's good. I love, I do love the high ideal of it. To think that we're trying to understand things that that the universe knows and we don't. I do, I do love that aspirational idea of it. I actually really enjoy giving talks to like fifth graders, you know, because they're really excited. Yeah. My own students are less excited, right? But I, I love teaching. <laughs> Even if I, you know, I don't do too much of it, but I do, I do enjoy it. But I think also it's that international community feeling like you meet everyone from all walks of life and their personal stories could come from anywhere. And I, I like to work with a community of people that are that different. All right. And then what about on the flip side? What challenges are out there for you? I'd say the hardest challenge about being a professor is the fact that you're your own boss a bit. Mm. Like you have a boss, but you, so you, you just have to self-motivate and you have to give yourself deadlines. Like it's not like a product has to be on the line at Home Depot and, you know, do this. No, you're inventing your own science and you're inventing your own milestones. And, you know, there is no paper deadline. You just have to get it out. So the only real deadlines were like proposal deadlines to get yeah. money to pay for chance. So that can be, that can be really hard because if you're having a bad day, you know, there's no real deadline pushing you except the one you created. Yeah. So it can slip. <laughs> it can slip a lot. So I struggle with that. I get that. And now we mentioned a couple of moments in your life, but do you have any memorable moment or memorable moments that really stick out in your career? Uh, I mean, of course. So, you know, the day we saw that gravitational wave will probably always be the moment, right? There's yeah. probably nothing that's going to top it. But uh, maybe. Because <laughs> the thing is like getting tenure slow, like you've worked for so long, you kind of know before you get the letter. And there are some bad days that I'll remember, you know, when people really don't think you should be there or you fit their mold of what a scientist should be. I've had some weird days like that. But of course, I was that little stubborn kid. I was like, I'll show you. Right. You think you know what a scientist looks like. <laughs> so the bad and the good sometimes what what stands out in the mind, right? So, yeah, I've had some pushback when I was younger. Not so much when you get senior. That also helped shape, I think, my career. Mm. All right. And now with all the studying that you've done, I'm curious about this, what you think, but do you think there is life outside of our planet? <laughs> I do. Yeah, absolutely. I do. Um, it's a big, big universe yeah. and it takes time for information to get to us, but I do think there's life. Is it intelligent life? I actually, if people say you had to say one way or another, I would say yes. I don't know if we're going to communicate it with it. I don't know if it's, it's close enough. Right. I don't know if it looks like us. I'm not sure if it's going to be carbon-based, but yeah, I absolutely think there is. Nice. All right. I was a science fiction buff, though, so you know. <laughs> yeah. Now, with that, 
how do you feel when you see some of these movies or films and they show like black holes and they show like the spaceship getting pulled into the black holes and things yeah. of that nature? What do you think when you see those? I calculate it. You know, I'm talking, you know, the interstellar, was that the one? Was interstellar the one where they, Earth was dying and they had to go around this black hole? And went through I think so. Yeah. Well, I used it to teach my class after a while because that actually had real, well, Kip Thorne helped write it. Mm. So it had real, like the science was right. But if it gets too close to my world, it's hard to let that go and like not actually see, could the person have aged that much near the planet? And it was true. They would have aged that much. So you, you really? can't help but like start to do the, but luckily my world's a small one. So I can watch all the other science fiction without actually having to check it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> which is nice. so you could just enjoy it. <laughs> yeah. I can watch Mars, you know, when he was on Mars without any of this craziness. Cause I don't do aerospace engineering. Got so. it. <laughs> well, Hey, Deirdre. <laughs> yeah, we're at the nice end of this chat with you. yeah we're going to head over to this quick hitter session where I'm going to ask you questions for fun just for people to get to know you a little bit better but before I do that though want to see if there's anything additional you want to talk about or anything you feel like I might have left off asking you now, I should check my numbers um, but Lago doesn't see white dwarf uh, oh, okay. so too small just neutral stars and buckles okay. not that that's that important for your audience but <laughs> for my head it's important for my head and, you know, we, we didn't talk about this, but you, you have your neutron star. Can you explain the difference with the or what the binary neutron star is? Yeah. So we use our binary a lot. So we just mean that. The, so the first event was the two black holes orbiting each other. And I said they lose energy and collide. The neutron stars do the same. So it's just yeah. two neutron stars orbiting each other and they lose energy. They collide into one thing. And that one thing can either be a neutron star or a black hole at the end of the day. Yeah. And you can even have a neutron star in a black hole. So it just depends on what the in the life of the stars that created them uh, but you could have two stars warping each other both of them collapse into a black hole or into a neutron star and that's how you get what we're talking about yeah doesn't happen all the time so that's why there aren't that 50 sounds like a lot but you know we're looking pretty far away As, 50, 50. yeah very far away <laughs> that's amazing all right so let's go to these quick hitter questions so first question what's your favorite sports team i lied to my children when they were young because they love football and I pretended I liked football. So I chose the Chicago Bears, but I didn't really have one who it was a lie. Sorry, kid. <laughs> so now it's, I think the women's U S soccer team. Cause now oh, yeah. I gotta be loyal, you know? Yeah. Good, good. All right. Now favorite movie or show. I'm almost, I hardly ever watch TV. I'm terrible. I watch, um, cooking channel, like crazy oh. person. Okay. That's boring. Yeah. I like to cook. So I don't actually, do I have a favorite movie or show? I don't think I do. That's so sad. <laughs> I don't binge watch Netflix. Okay. I watch cooking stuff. Yeah, I'm boring. No, nah, that's not boring at all. All right. Favorite musical artist or group? Oh, wow. That's hard too, isn't it? I read that you did this and then I forgot to think of the answers. Um, <laughs> what is my favorite group? I really liked um, like Natalie Merchant. That's kind of sad. Like 10,000 maniacs, but that's aging me. I look like I'm a thousand years old. <laughs> it's true, though. All right. And then, uh, fav uh, favorite vacation spot? Oh, I know that because we're Jones in Fort Wright. None of us have been anywhere. Yeah. I'm so lucky. I've been to the Greek islands several times. Nice. And I, yeah, that's that's obnoxious, right? Mm. To say, oh, the Greek islands. Yeah. <laughs> but it's still true. <laughs> it's so beautiful. Yeah, that's what I keep hearing. All right, that's where I want to go, my next place. And favorite food or drink? Um, there is 
this um, thing in Mexico from my husband's hometown called Sacawil. And it's like a giant tamal that they bake in a special oven and you can only get it in that region, which drives me nuts. And that's my favorite food. All right. So don't ask me out. to spell it because okay. I don't know how to spell it. Okay. You have to go to San Luis Potosí. So good luck with it. It's delicious. Oh. Favorite. My favorite drink is uh, Isla Scotch, Lagavulin. Mm-hmm. It's very specific. I can't tell TV show, but I'll tell you what Scotch I like. That's, <laughs> that's, that's a problem right there. <laughs> Pandemic will do that, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, this has been great. I feel like I got a lot smarter just talking to you. Sure. I miss mean, stuff. I need to get into uh, one of your classes. So no, this has been great. Good conversation. Very informative. And you know, just congrats on all that you're doing and all your accomplishments. And keep doing it. Keep doing it. And thank you for coming on to this podcast. And, well, thank you. It was, it was fun. Oh, good. Great. Great. And is there any way that people can uh, reach out to you if they have any comments or questions? I mean, I do have email. I mean, honestly, if you can spell my name, then, then there aren't many of me. <laughs> so right. there's, I have a website under UT Austin's website. It's not, it's not really hard to find me. I'm the only Deirdre. Right. <laughs> and Deirdre Shoemaker is not very popular. <laughs> so you Google me, you'll find me. It's not hard. Sounds good. Well, thanks a lot, Deirdre. Have Thank a you. Day. It was nice chatting with you. Yep. You too. Take All care. Right. Thank you, everyone. If you have any comments or questions, would like to be in the podcast please reach out to me on instagram at rodolfo cooper thank you bye